It's an amazing thing. It's always been a bit ironic to me that as the Reformed community, as those who ascribe to the Reformed faith, and that's what we do as a church, like we understand, I think, uniquely well within the context of the larger Christian community, our need for God's Spirit to come and literally make us alive and grant us faith and open our eyes and open our ears and transform our hearts and do all of these kinds of things on the one hand, and yet I feel like we have a lot to learn from our charismatic friends about a passion for the Spirit and for truly crying out to Him to do those things. It's like we're afraid He might. I'm afraid He won't. I think we need to ask Him to do it. So with all that in mind, as we return today to our study of this book of 1 Corinthians that we started several weeks ago, we return also to the conversation that we've been having now for several weeks with the Apostle Paul, but about what? About the topic of wisdom. And if you've been hanging out with us these weeks, you know that it's been mostly a negative-sounding conversation. In other words, if all that we had of the book of 1 Corinthians is what we've studied up until today... At least some of us would probably be tempted to walk away thinking, you know, I think maybe Paul is against wisdom. Okay, Paul is not against wisdom. We're going to see that today. But here's what he is against. He is against foolishness that looks like wisdom. He's against that. Foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. Foolishness that presents as wisdom. Foolishness that comes to me and it comes to you and it comes to everybody else as well, packaged in the wrappings of wisdom. And that as a result... Pretty much everyone everywhere, including, and this is the problem that he's going after today, many of us look at, and even though it's foolishness, we give it the label of wisdom. Oh no, that's wisdom. No, it's foolishness. Paul's like, you have the Spirit, you should see the difference. So Paul is not against wisdom. He's against foolishness that looks like wisdom, but here's the problem with true wisdom. The problem with true wisdom is that it oftentimes looks like foolishness. It masquerades as foolishness. It presents as foolishness. It comes to us wrapped in the packaging of foolishness. And as a result, we look at that which is true wisdom oftentimes, and together with everyone else in the world, and that's the problem. We ought to be different. He'll address that. We label it foolishness. And we saw, I think, an excellent example of that at the end of both of our services last week. Because at the end of both of our services last week, we brought Dan and Amanda Mason up here, and we laid hands on them. Do you remember that? And what did we do? We sent him off for a year. This young man who was raised in our church, this young lady who's been on our staff for almost a decade, okay, we laid hands on him and said, go do missions for a year, and we'll see you when you get back. And they're spending the first five months in Croatia. Now, but why did we do that? Why did they do that? You say, well, maybe it's because God's been developing a heart for missions in these guys. I mean, they've been on several trips to Haiti and all over the place. And so I think that's probably part of it. But really, do you want to know what the answer is? Because I don't think we divulged it last week. The answer is that God woke up Dan in the middle of the night. You know, the Holy Spirit can do these kinds of things. I know we're afraid of that. I'm not sure that I would be. God woke up Dan in the middle of the night and gave him a clear impression that, you know what? Here's what you're supposed to do, Dan. You're supposed to take your townhome, which is probably your only asset. You've been accumulating equity in this thing for a while, and you're supposed to sell it. So liquidate that. Add to that number whatever you have in savings. Quit your jobs. Get rid of your health care. And then, mostly at your own expense... Go to Croatia for five months and then spend the rest of the year going to other places doing missions work, all the while examining in your heart and that of your wife whether or not you're called to do this with all the rest of the years of your life. I'll bet that was an interesting conversation with Amanda. What do you think? 
Like I'm thinking if I'm Dan, I'm making her breakfast in bed. And not just because I'm trying to win her favor, but because I think if she's standing when I say to her, hey, by the way, God woke up me, not you. And here's what he wants us to do. You know, there's less of a chance that she's going to faint if she's in a lying position. So I'd go with that. You know what Amanda did, by the way? She got on the plane with him and left after having sold the home that she had made a home, after having quit the job that she loves. Now, let me ask you, foolishness or wisdom? How do you judge it? What do you think? Like if you were here last week, did you get in your car going, man, I can't believe they're doing that. That's so awesome. I hope our kids do that. Or do you, did you get in the car and say to your husband or wife, good grief, those people are nuts. What in the heck are they doing? I mean, we'll pray for you, Dan, and we, maybe we'll write you a little check so that we can help you on your way. But please, Jesus, don't have our kids do that. It's not a silly question. It's really actually a very serious question. Wisdom or foolishness? Foolishness or Wisdom. All right, so here's Paul's message to us today in a nutshell. Here we go. Spirit-filled people, and I want to stop and say that's who we are if we're believers in Jesus, and he's made that clear from the beginning, has he not? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no shot at looking at Christ on the cross and seeing your Savior and God apart from God coming to you, making you alive, giving you eyes with which to behold Him, ears with which to hear His gospel, a heart that is no longer one like a stone, but that is soft and malleable, that He can inhabit You receive him by faith. Listen, these people in Corinth are Christians that he's writing to. He's talked about that. He's talked about how they have the gifts of the Holy Spirit and have manifested these things. There's no question about that. And if you're a believer, you too have the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-filled people, what? Recognize true wisdom for what it really is or really, because again, here's the problem, we should, they should, but they weren't. We should recognize true wisdom for what it really is, and then, by the power of that same Spirit who opens our eyes and reveals to us true wisdom. Hey, you know what? I know that looks like foolishness, but that's actually true wisdom. Oh, you know what? I know that looks like wisdom. Yeah, not so much. So that we can live it. So then you say, well, then why don't all Christians do that. Like, I mean, what was wrong with these Corinthians? And for that matter, what's wrong with us when we get in the car after we send off Dan and Amanda and go, gee whiz, you know, this place is a little too serious about following Jesus, I think. What is it that blinds us? I'm sure there are several things. I'm going to give you one. I think what happens, the problem oftentimes is that the busyness of our lives, the constant barragement of the values and morals and ethics of this world, and the continual battles that every single one of us has with our passions, with our desires, with our insecurities, with our sinful, selfish flesh, just to put it differently, creep in upon us almost imperceptibly. And what do they do? They crowd out the voice of the Holy Spirit. And before we know it, and almost without our knowing it, what are we doing? We're calling wisdom foolishness and foolishness wisdom, and we're living lives, and that's how you know whether this is true of you, that look just like everyone else. And it's like a dimmer switch in a room. 
You know, when somebody walks into a room, let's just imagine you sitting in a room and let's say the dimmer switch is on the wall behind you. Okay, if they walk into the room and it's nice and bright and they just pop the dimmer switch and shut the lights off all at once, you know it, don't you? But what if they walk in and you don't know it? And over the course of an hour, they just turn it down. At the end of an hour, you're sitting in the darkness and you don't even know what's happened. The busyness of life, the constant barragement of an ethic that is not Christian. The internal struggles with our flesh and with our passions and with our desires and with our insecurities and with our wounds and dysfunctions and our sinful, selfish flesh. They creep in behind us and they take the Holy Spirit and grab, lay hold of that dimmer switch and slowly but surely they crowd it out. Well, I'm hoping that we can just turn it back on. I think that's the problem. And I think that's what Paul's after with these people. You'll see that in a second. But not just with them, but with us. I mean, we've spent weeks also establishing the fact that, hey, you know what? I know they lived in the first century. Yeah, we're like twins, okay? So we pick up our study today, 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. And he starts with this. He says, yet among the mature. Now, I'm going to stop because I know some of you are thinking, who is that? All right, well, those are the believers in Christ who have not allowed the busyness of this life and the morals and ethics and the barragement and all of that from the world and their passions and all of the struggles with their sinful, selfish flesh to walk up behind them and turn down the dimmer switch on the Holy Spirit to block out the voice of the Spirit in their lives. But instead, they've, they've maintained that life in the Spirit that sensitivity to God. And as a result, they've maintained the ability to do what? To look at something that looks like foolishness and to call it wisdom because God himself has revealed that to them. And to look at something that looks like wisdom and to say, you know what? No, because God reveals that to them. He speaks of those people that we're called to be like. This is what he wants for them and us. And he says, yet among the mature, let me tell you about my message. You guys think it's foolishness, but the mature understand something different. They know that we do impart to them and to you true, I've added that word, wisdom. Okay, well, question number two, what is the true wisdom that he's talking about here? Because if you're just joining us today... I mean, he unpacked it last week. What is the true wisdom of God? Like in a nutshell, what is it? Let me give you two words. It's Christ crucified. Paul has come to the Corinthians and through this letter to them, he's coming to us too and he's saying, let me tell you something, but you're going to need the spirit to see this. The wisdom of God, the true wisdom of which I speak is the message of Christ crucified. It is God himself embodied in human flesh, abused, beaten, mistreated, misunderstood, misrepresented, slandered, denied, betrayed, tortured, hanging naked on a cross alongside a busy public road outside one of the busy public gates of the city of Jerusalem, suffering and dying from asphyxiation. And here's for what end? That he might pay the penalty, the price that we owe to him for all of the ways that we have taken our lives as his creatures and lived them for ourselves as opposed to living them for him as our creator. That's the true wisdom of God. But let me ask you something. What does that look like? Wisdom? Or foolishness. 
It's the Spirit of the Lord who comes to us. And, you know, maybe you've heard that message a thousand times, but maybe today for the first time, He gives you eyes to really behold that Jesus and hear it with a different set of ears and receive it with a wholly different heart. It is God's supernatural enablement that allows us to look at Jesus Christ on the cross and to see Him as our God and as our Savior, as our King and as our Lord to look upon Him in His humiliation and to see in that His greatest moment of glory. God has an upside-down economy, guys. It's the lowly who are exalted. Those who exalt themselves, in the end, made low. Paul comes to us and he says, Yet among the mature... We do impart true wisdom, and the true wisdom of God is the message of Christ crucified. But here's what else it is. In addition to that, it's all the practical implications of that for my life and for your life. And here's why I say that, because the whole of the New Testament, and Jesus in particular, comes to us and says, let me tell you something about the cross. It's not just a place of death for Christ. It's a place of death for everyone who would authentically seek to follow Christ. And why is that? Because it's the place that you and I are to come daily, hourly, minute by minute, moment by moment, with what? With our passions, with our desires, with our plans, dreams, ambitions, agendas, everything we wanted to do with our lives, indeed with our life, as we would define, construct, and live it if there was no God and we were free to live for ourselves, which we're not. And by the power of the Spirit, crucify that life so that we can, by the power of the same Spirit who reveals Christ crucified to us as Savior and God, take up the life that He has uniquely designed and constructed for us and learn to live that life instead, which ironically As we do that, we discover is a far better life than the one we would have designed. We find in it the things that we were seeking to find in everything else. And we do that, by the way. Many of us here in Fort Lauderdale, two of us right now in Croatia, and that's wisdom. So again, Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart true wisdom, and because they're mature and have not allowed the voice of the Holy Spirit to be drowned out by sin or busyness or whatever, they recognize it for what it is, although, or even though, he says, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. In other words, even though it looks like foolishness to everyone else, it's not to those who have the Spirit and who are in touch with the Spirit as opposed to those who are living by the flesh, even though maybe they do have the Spirit. He's been drowned out. He says, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. And then he tells us what will happen to the rulers of this age. He says, who are doomed to pass away and why is that? Because when they look at the cross, they don't see their Lord and Savior. Christ crucified is not wisdom to them. It's foolishness. And so he continues and says, but we impart a secret. A secret is something that you have to share and tell somebody uniquely, is it not? A secret is not something everybody automatically understands and knows. No, no, I've got a secret for you. It's a special message. Only some people get to hear it. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Hidden things are not obvious. But it's wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for whom? For us, for our glory, meaning for the eternal glory to those to whom God comes by His Holy Spirit and says, hey, let me tell you the secret. 
Let me reveal to you what is otherwise hidden. It's not obvious that the man on the cross is Almighty God, He is Savior and Lord. But the man on the cross is Almighty God, He is Savior and Lord. It is a brilliant and humble wisdom. However, none of the rulers of this age understood this secret or ascertained this wisdom, Paul says, because if they had, he goes on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but they didn't see Him as the Lord of glory. That's the point. And the question for us is, do we, do I, do you? But as it is written, and as we sang today, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, oh, that's what God has prepared for those who love Him. To which he adds, these things God has revealed, but whom has He revealed it to? To us, he's saying, to believers. Through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit reveals to believers these things. That's the idea. Why? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God Himself. And then he draws an analogy between God and the Spirit and you and I and how we operate. He goes on and he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Here's what that means. It means that you and I don't know what each other is thinking, right? I mean, you don't know what I'm thinking unless I tell you what I'm thinking or show you by my life what I'm thinking. There are things that are happening in here that only I know about. Same with you. Same with God. But what does the Spirit do? He searches the deep things, even the depths of God Himself. It's amazing. And he says here, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But now notice, who has the Spirit? Again, he says, now we Christians have received not the Spirit of the world. That's why we shouldn't live that way. But the Spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God like Christ crucified. And the practical implications of that for my life and for your life. And so Paul says, hey guys, newsflash, we impart this wisdom. That's the wisdom we're giving to you. In words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual and have not allowed the voice of the Spirit to be drowned out in their lives. For the natural person, meaning the one who does not have the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? They are folly. They are foolishness. They are foolishness to Him. But are they foolishness in fact? They're true wisdom. Therefore, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. However, the spiritual person who's not allowed the voice of the Spirit to be crowded out by other things judges all things, including the difference between true wisdom and true foolishness, rightly is the point, but is himself to be judged by no one, at least no one who doesn't have the Spirit. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we who have the Holy Spirit have what else? The mind of of Christ. And as a result, we should recognize true wisdom for what it really is and live in light of it. And the point again is that that's exactly what these guys were not doing. And you know that because in the next four verses, he makes it plain. And he contrasts in these next four verses, the spirit and the flesh. He's saying, guys, I can't speak spiritual truths to you. Because even though you're believers, and yes, that presupposes that the Spirit awoke you and gave you faith, 
You've manifested the gifts. I got it. You're not living by the Spirit. Your thoughts and your life are far more governed by your flesh. So he says to them, but I, brothers, could not address you, he says, as spiritual people, but as people of the, here it is, flesh, as infants, as opposed to mature people in Christ. I fed you, he says, with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the, here it is again, flesh. And here's how I know that, Paul says, and here's how we know this about ourselves. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving, that's the key, only in a human way as opposed to in a spirit-filled way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, which is, as we saw several weeks ago, what they're doing. He says, are you not being merely human, or to put it differently, are you not merely living lives that look just like the lives of everyone else who do not know Jesus and, and do not have the Spirit? which for our purposes today, I think, means that if we authentically want to know the answer to this question, okay, have have I allowed, you know, the busyness of this life, or maybe it's my sin, or, you know, something like that. Okay, it's the morals, it's the values, it's the ethics of this world, it's my struggles and passions and desires and plans and dreams and agenda that I idolize, that I idolize. To crowd out the voice of the Holy Spirit slowly, imperceptively, without me realizing it, and to the point where now I call foolishness wisdom and wisdom foolishness. The question is, if I've done that, take a look at your life. Does it look any different from anybody else's who doesn't know Jesus? That's a test. It's something to consider. But here's what else you can do. You can compare it as well to what Paul says in Galatians 5 beginning in verse 16, where he speaks of the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of a tree? It's what the tree produces. So he says, but I say walk or live. That's the idea. Living people walk. Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now notice this, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that You want to do, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And now he says, now the works of the flesh are what? They are evident. What does that mean? It means that they're obvious. It means that you don't do one of the works of the flesh and sit around wondering whether that's in fact what it was. Was that a work of the Spirit that I just did? No. It's evident. It's plain. And we all know it when we do it, and we all do it. But he gives us a non-exhaustive list. Hey, let me give you some examples, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. You're fighting all the time with everybody. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Meaning there are other equally obvious things, but you get the point, I think, is what he's saying. And so he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, hey, well, wait a minute, because I've done some of those things. So what does that mean? It means you know a tree by its fruit. And he's talking about people who only produce the fruit of the flesh. Not those who have produced the fruit of the flesh a bunch of times, but have been renewed by God's Spirit and come to faith in Christ and who now are going through a life in which they're dying more and more into sin and living more and more into righteousness, but producing the fruit of both 
However, one, the fruit of the Spirit in increasing measure, and the flesh in decreasing measure. He's talking about people who, you know, may say they belong to Jesus, but the truth is the only fruit they ever produce is the fruit of the flesh. And then he continues and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and he gives this beautiful, also non-exhaustive list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, guys, against such things, there is no law. And now notice, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have done what with their flesh? They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And here's why, because the flesh was not just a place of death for Jesus, but for us. But for us, as we daily, as we hourly, as we minute by minute, at moment by moment at times, because that's what it takes, bring this flesh and bring all of our passions and desires and everything else to Christ and crucify them so that we might take up the life that He has uniquely designed and constructed for us, a life in which we'll find the purpose and meaning, etc., that we're looking for in the life that we would have lived otherwise. Be that here in Fort Lauderdale or in Croatia, like Dan and Amanda. In other words, I think that what we need to learn to do as followers of Christ is really actively to live at the foot of the cross, moment by moment. We don't need to just visit it every once in a while. Hey, I'm going to visit the cross on Sunday and then I'm out. You know, I'm, I visited in the morning and now I'm going to live like hell. You know, it's not it. It's in every moment in the light of the cross life. And here's why. Because our flesh doesn't just beckon to us occasionally. Oh, you know what? I think I have an issue. Now I have to go to the cross. No, no, no. All of the time it's calling. And all of the time it needs to be crucified that we might find that which is authentically life. So I'm going to give you a bunch of examples. Our flesh, mine and yours, and not just sometimes but all the time, wants to fully indulge in sin and give way to all of our passions, okay? The cross is a place of death to sin, and it's a place that calls us to indulge in a wholly different set of passions. Holy passions. Passions for Christ, passions for justice, passions for mercy, passions for the gospel, passion for the world. Different set of passions. But one needs to die so the other can be taken up. Again and again and again and again, our flesh is full of pride. And there too, not occasionally. There's always this little flame of pride within us, you know, that's just looking for fuel, you know. Somebody comes up and goes, hey, wow, and we're like, whoo, and it blows up. Really? We need to die to that. The cross is a place of humility. It's a place of humiliation for the sake of the world. And again, the humble are what in the end? Because it's the end that we're living for. They're exalted, but those who would exalt themselves in this life, who would seek to feed the passion of pride with the flattery of others, that they might make something of themselves, will in the end not be exalted but humbled. Our flesh wants everything and all of the time, by the way, to go our way and then gets angry at everyone, including God, when it doesn't go our way. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Really? Well, it's true of me. Okay. And here's the deal. The cross is a place of victory. 
but it's a victory that comes only through defeat. And it's a victory that is known only by those who trust that in the end they will be fully vindicated and blessed. Our flesh wants to organize our lives in such a way as to get everyone to serve us. Don't lie, that's you, it's okay, you're in good company. But the cross is a place of ultimate sacrifice and service for the benefit of others. Our flesh loves to hold a grudge. What does Jesus say at the cross? Father, forgive them. And he speaks that not just over these people who literally just nailed him to the cross. He speaks that over me and you. And why do I say that? Because our sin nailed him to the cross. And his love held him there. Father, forgive them. Oh, and incidentally, I'm paying the price for that. So forgive them. Our flesh wants to complain about all of the things that we don't have, particularly when we look at all of the things that everyone else has, and yet in the cross we find everything that we need, and far more than we can imagine. Our flesh struggles with feelings of worthlessness. All of the time it's there. And then what we do with our flesh is we give it a whole pile full of mistakes so that, you know, our flesh can grab hold of those and go, do you see that? Did you hear that? Do you know what you did? Let me remind you of this and of this and of this. And the evil one comes along and he's like, yes, gas on that fire. Aren't you worthless? What does the cross say? Where you're called to live. It's God embodied dying for you. There's no greater value to be found in the whole of the universe than that. Our flesh is insecure. The cross speaks of our infinite and eternal security. Our flesh is selfish. The cross is selfless, and it calls us to that kind of life. Our flesh tells us that this life is all that there is, and so we better get as much as we can and do as much as we possibly can, because when it's over, it's over, and that's it. And maybe this Jesus thing is kind of an insurance policy, just in case you're wrong about that. No. The cross comes and tells us that death gives way to resurrection and eternal life, and that that's the life we ought to concern ourselves primarily with in this life that we live, and that Jesus Christ is not an insurance policy, and if that's all that He is for you, then He's not your insurance policy. He is a Savior, and He is a Lord. He is King. He is God. And He and that next life is more real than the one that we're living Our flesh craves comfort and seeks to avoid suffering above all things, but the cross embraces suffering as a means of redemption and endures it knowing that it ends in resurrection and in glory. Our flesh despairs and gives up on people. You ever do that? It's always a challenge. You just look at this person and think, yeah, no, it's just never going to happen, ever. (laughs) And yet the thief on the cross dying next to Christ in the dying moments of his life finds faith. I think that's a place of hope. I think that there's always that hope. Our flesh tells us that we're somehow better than other sinners until we gather with them at the foot of the cross and realize we're all looking each other in the eye, you see. Our flesh cares desperately about what other people think of us. And so we race around trying to please everybody, to keep everybody happy and win everybody's favor. It's not to say we don't need to be pleasing or nice or any of those kinds of things. But that's not the goal of life. The cross calls us to care desperately, far more desperately, about living lives that please the Lord. Lives of service to other people. But that find our identity in Him. Last one. 
Our flesh does not want to tell other people about Jesus. And here's why. Because we know that apart from the operation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and in their lives, Christ crucified looks like foolishness. And we look like fools. And yet the great King and God of the universe who hung in humiliation naked for you, for you, calls you to be a fool for His sake and for the sake of the world. And just as He opened your eyes to see that Christ on that cross and to recognize in Him God in the flesh, living and suffering and dying for you, man, He can do that with anybody. Even the ones who think you're silly. So if you want to know whether or not you've allowed the busyness of this life and the morals and values and ethics that we constantly are barraged by in the world, continual battles that we all have with our passions and desires and sins and selfishness and insecurities of our sinful, selfish flesh to creep in on you and and to cut the dimmer switch, if you will, to crowd out the voice of the Holy Spirit such that Without even realizing it, you've begun to call wisdom foolishness and foolishness wisdom. All right, well, ask yourself, does my life look any different than the lives of people who don't know Christ? And roll it past also Galatians 5, fruit of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. And then do this because you'll find your need to do it. Bring your life to the cross, to Christ crucified for the forgiveness, for the redemption for the eternal life, for the salvation, for the relief that you need. Because in Him, guys, is the wisdom of God. And then live there. Pitch your tent there. Make your home there. Refuse to leave from there. Take up your residence there. Wake up every day thereafter, an hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment when necessary. And it is necessary because the flesh doesn't give us a rest. Crucify the flesh. Again and again and again and again, so that by this power of the same Holy Spirit who gave you eyes to see Christ crucified as God and Savior, as King of the universe, you can take up the life that He's designed for you and live that instead, even if it's in Croatia. And know this, the life He calls you to lead will at times look crazy. But not to people who are living by the Spirit. Because Spirit-filled people recognize wisdom, true wisdom, for what it is, and they'll come alongside and help you live it too. So, two questions, and I'm done. Question number one, have you brought your life to Christ? Have you looked at the man upon the cross and recognized that he's not just another guy, but in fact that that is the love of God poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and the redemption of your soul. Have you done that? If not, this is your day. And then secondly, where are you living? Are you living at the foot of the cross or do you you just visit it occasionally? Are you living out there really and then coming in here every once in a while and then living out there and then coming back again because the cross calls you to come and live at its foot and from its power? So do that. That's my challenge to you guys this morning. Okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the man upon the cross, whom by the power of Your Spirit we have come to understand in accordance with Your Word. 
is not just any other man. But indeed, in the face of Christ, we see the face of our God. And in the crucifixion of Christ, we see the love of our God, the mercy of our God, the justice of our God. For he took the justice, and in love and mercy, he took it in our place. And in that man upon the cross, we find the forgiveness of our God. We are purchased by our God. We are made sons and daughters of the Father who is our God. We are granted His Holy Spirit and called now to learn to live for Him. Give us the grace to come to the cross for the forgiveness we need and give us the grace to stay at the cross and from it, in constant communion with You by Your Spirit, through Your Word, as we seek to live this life together as an unusual community in the world. God, give us the grace to live and to learn to live for you. Do these things for your glory, we pray, for the sake of the one who suffered and died and rose again. In Jesus' name, amen.